First time I ever read the book of Job was on a mission trip in a hot and airless church service somewhere in Rwanda in the year 2000. I had only been, on a, mission, uh, I had only been a Christian for six months and uh, was wrestling with the question of suffering. Oh, I really got the truth of the gospel that Christ died for my sins and for me, I knew my sin, that was a big deal. But afterwards, as is often the case, when you come to faith, you read the Bible and there's like, whoa, I didn't see that before. And you start thinking about other subjects and suffering for me was one of them. Teenage life was hard for me. Actually, before that was quite hard. Uh, and the, the one word that I would use to describe what life was like before I came to faith is a word that I can't say here. Uh, I push that back and use more godly words. But in Rwanda, I was wrestling through all of this. And uh, though I tried very hard at various points to push the suffering to the back of my mind, Rwanda was just shoving it in my face constantly. 2000, so only six years after the genocide, one million people slaughtered in one month. I had visited far too many mass graves and memorials, strange memorials. I mean, they're not memorials like ours. Our memorials are very neat and polished marble with gold leaf writing. Theirs are the shells of burnt out churches, blood marks on the wall. It's horrendous, really. And I couldn't stop asking, in the face of such suffering, why? Now, someone on that mission trip then suggested I read the book of Job, and there I was in a service that went on for about five hours, so this is short, uh, this, the pastor had actually preached three sermons that morning, but he was preaching in Kinyarwanda, I didn't understand the language, so I thought, well, I might as well read Job. And I opened it up to start. I was at the far end of the bench from our interpreter anyway, so I thought, I'll just go for it. And it was absolutely gripping, even as we've seen from these first two chapters. There's the drama in heaven, the shock of the suffering, and then, as we'll see in following weeks, the friends and their reasoning. Now, when I'd finished, I looked up to see one of our guides standing up front. I'd been lost in the book, but I looked up and there she was, this joyful person in absolute floods of tears and passionately telling a story. Like her, that's the kind of gesture she was make, as if making, as if she was kind of chucking her heart out for people to see it. desperate to hear what she was saying, I crawled along and sat in the gr on the ground in front of the interpreter, her visually in front of me, the interpreter's voice behind me, and this is what I heard. She was talking about what happened to her on that dark, dark night in 1994. Four Hutu men broke through her family's uh, meagerly barricaded door and took the life of her father, her mother, her four younger siblings in the space of minutes. And after that, one man did the unspeakable to her and let her live, telling her it was to make her suffering lifelong and that he hoped it was short. Now, I can't remember her name, but I remember the name of the son she bore nine months later. She called him innocent. Why? Why did it happen? Why do bad things happen to people? Why do bad things happen to people who are good, it seems? Well, no book answers these questions quite like 
Job. Let's look at chapters 1 and 2 together. We're going to race through it. That's fine. We've got five weeks to deal with this book. And uh, if you're taking notes, quite simply, I have two points. Number one, Job trusted God in good times. That's the way this book starts in verses 1 to 5. Verses 1 to 5 are actually pretty much the only biographical details that you get of this man. Uh, We know that he's a real person because later in Ezekiel, he refers to Job as an historical person in uh, in the same sentence as a few other real historical heroes of the Old Testament. But as you look at Job in these first five verses, there are three things that stand out. One, he was a godly man. Verse one, look with me. Job was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. Now, if you've ever read the book of Proverbs, You're reading that going, tick, 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 tick. This boy is the epitome of wisdom. He's walking in the ways of the Lord. He reveres God in all his ways. It's a wonderful thing to see. And in fact, three times in these first two chapters, we're told the exact same thing. And amazingly, twice it's from the mouth of God. Now, this doesn't mean, of course, that Job is sinless. There's only one sinless man, Jesus Christ. But it does mean that he is walking with God. He's wise. He's a believer. He loves God. The second thing we see is that he's a wealthy man. If you want to know if someone's rich nowadays, you can, you can look at their bank balance. But if you want to know if someone was rich back then, look into their fields. See how many flocks and herds they had. This guy's minted. He is so rich. And the impression we're meant to get, of course, is that God is blessing him. The third thing that we see is that he is a family man. You see in verses 2 and in verses 4 and 5. Verse 2 tells us about his kids. He's got 10 of them. I bet they're at each other's throats all the time. You know, I've got three. You know what it's like. Stop that. Stop. Get them out of the headlock. You know. But no, these guys are having great fun together. They're having birthday parties. And they're even inviting the younger ones. I grew up with two older brothers, six and eight years older than me. I did not get invited to one single thing that they went to do. And it was not, yes, it was a point of real contention. But these guys, this is a picture of absolute harmony. You know what you're meant to conclude when you read that? Job's a proper dad. His wisdom is creating a happy family. It's a beautiful picture. Verse 5 picks out what was most important to him, of course, in parenting. What did he want most for his kids? Godliness. A right standing with God himself. Oh, we parents, parents make sacrifices for their kids in all sorts of ways, don't we? We sacrifice time, we sacrifice money and effort to put the kids into club after club, into all sorts of things, schools and planes to take them on holiday. But none of that matters if our kids are not walking with the Lord, right? We ought to be putting effort in in that respect. Well, Job is the one who is concerned for their souls more than he is their education, their holiness, uh, their happiness, sorry, began with an H, their happiness and everything else. This is number one, and he offers sacrifices for them, for their sin. Not just because he thinks everyone's a sinner, they're going to need it, but because he believes God is the one who saves sinners. Do you? He does. He's made it plain again and again and again for us in no better way than the cross of Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago. God sent him in love, he tells us, to declare to the world, demonstrate to the world his love for us. God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Believe that. That's the way we come to know this God. 
And what a blessing it is to be those who know their sins forgiven. Now, why are we introduced to Job in this way in verses 1 to 5? What does God actually want us to know? It's quite simple, really. He wants us to know that Job is a good man honoring God in all that he does and that whatever comes next is not, is not, is not in these circumstances punishment. It's not discipline. It's not karma. It's not you did something really bad, therefore God is letting you have it. We're going to get to that next week. No, when he's suffering, it's for different reasons. Actually, as the passage goes on to say, there are unseen things taking place that are way more important than actually maintaining Job's comfort. These are big concepts, friends. And if verses 1 to 5 show that Job trusted God in good times, we find in, chap- in verse 6 through to, chap- through to verse 10 of chapter 2, he also trusted God amazingly in hard times. Now verse 6, take, that's point 2. Verse 6 takes us then away from Uz and draws back the curtain on the heavenly realms. And there are two neat sections here, both following near identical patterns. There's the discussion between God and Satan. Satan charges God with naivety and suggests a test. God grants permission but sets the conditions. Job then suffers, losing first his wealth and then second his health. And then Job responds in worship and in godliness. And really, there are three very, very important lessons for us to learn. First of all, that Satan has real influence. He exists as much as God does. Uh, he is, let's not, let's not fall foul of what we call dualistic theology. It's not like God is this one powerful force on one side and the, the devil is this equally powerful force on the other and they're just fighting it out to see who's going to win the day. No, that's Star Wars, brothers and sisters. The Bible teaches better theology than that. He is a created being and a fallen angel. He has no power, as we'll see, unless God permits it. So it's not dualism. There's not equal here. And yet, it's true to say, as the Bible presents, he has influence. He is an opponent of God's purposes. So verse 6 pictures, if you look with me, it pictures God as the king he is. What's he doing? He is gathering those who serve his purposes in for their reports, and look who's included, Satan. He's not gate crashing, but neither is he thrown out. Yes, he's been dishonorably discharged from godly service, but look, he is still called to account. And that's plain in the where have you come from question that God asks in verse 7 and again in chapter 2. Now, it's not that God doesn't know. Where have you been? God knows everything. There is nothing he does not know. He's not looking for information. There's nothing that God could ever learn. He knows it all. And then he, he just kind of responds in that kind of petulant, teenagerish way. Just being places, doing stuff. But Peter tells us Satan prowls around looking for people to devour. He gives insight into this. And this is Satan's, that's Satan's response. He's not sightseeing as he goes throughout the earth. He wants to discredit God by discrediting his people. And when God brings Job up for discussion, and note, God brings Job up. 
God does. We see Satan scheming for ourselves. And what do we see? He is an accuser of God's people. Now, God commends the faith of Job, but Satan, of course, is not impressed. Verse 9, does Job fear God for nothing? In other words, does he worship you for no reason whatsoever? Of course he worships you, Satan is saying. You've made his life so cushy. Anybody will believe in you when life is good, but take it all away and watch him curse you to your face. What's he doing? What's his scheming here? Well, in the first cycle of suffering, it's like, oh, people like Job don't love you for who you are. They only love you for what they can get out of you. Call yourself gods. Call himself a worshiper. In the second trial, after Job worships God through those initial tears, Satan's attack is basically, ah, people like Job are fundamentally self-centered. He doesn't actually care that much about losing his, his flocks and his herds. Or his family, because he's fundamentally a self-centered being, like all human beings are. But, strike his health. Ah. Then we'll see how faithful this Job is. But God will not entertain the lie. And strange as it may seem, and strange it does seem, God chooses to prove it according to his infinite knowledge and his infinite wisdom, in other words, the perfectly applied, the perfect application of that infinite knowledge to achieve the best possible end and the highest possible good is to permit the trial. Verse 12, everything he has in your power. Chapter two, verse six, he is in your hands. Now, when I first read that, I don't know what you think when you first read that. I don't know what you think when you hear it just now, but are you not just a little bit like, no, what are you doing? Blast the devil to smithereens right there and then. Don't, don't entertain this nonsense. You don't see his schemes. Do you hear the subtle, not so subtle, application or implication that I'm, I reckon God's pretty gullible and I'm cleverer and much more discerning than he is, but God's not done. He's not gullible. So the question we have to ask is why? And the answer is in the second lesson that we learn. It's not just that Satan has real influence, it's that God is absolutely sovereign. The reason God permits the suffering, it seems to me, is that God wanted to magnify his glory in the life of Job to the ridicule of Satan in ways that brought supreme levels of praise. And didn't it work, just as we aside, we are, after all, reading about Job right now and marveling at what God is doing in this story. God sustains Job in his suffering and proves the genuineness of Job's faith. And at the same time, God makes an absolute public spectacle of Satan. 
Oh, Satan has his schemes, but he doesn't have infinite knowledge. He's not deity. He doesn't have infinite wisdom. He would shoot himself in the foot a million times. The, fam- the most famous time, of course, would be with another suffering son. The one whose life was not just relatively pure and holy as Job's was, but actually Jesus Christ. Satan's most inspiring plan to kill Jesus Christ, not through Sabaeans and Chaldeans, but Romans and Jews, did not bring about the end of faith. The end of God. It only served to bring the praise of billions to him. Now, Satan is a lion, as Peter says, but he's a lion on a leash. Uh, Whenever I think of Satan, I often think of circus lions, actually. I don't know why. I've never actually seen a circus lion. I've never actually been to a circus. But as far as I can tell from The Greatest Showman and from Dumbo, (laughs) lions are collared and spiked. So there is a great big, a big spike in the ground and the lion has range so it's allowed to roar and it's allowed to scare you in the circus. That's the whole point. Oh, I'm really scared. But it's not really going to get me. We hope. But it's constrained. This far and this far only can it go and that's true. This far and no further is what God says of Satan. Satan is not free. That's why he sets the conditions on him. Sure, take that but don't touch him. Sure, inflict that, but don't take his life. Don't you see that God allows Satan to outwork some of his scheming in order in his sovereignty to achieve the very opposite of what Satan wanted? Did Job curse God in the end? He'll curse you to his face, to your face, said Satan. No. He blessed God and worshipped him. You see, God's purposes are far more magnificent than actually we can ever see. And maybe even in this life understand. God's glory, way more important than actually Job's comfort or, it's hard to say, our present comfort. So yes, Satan has real influence and Yes, God is absolutely sovereign and that's a real comfort. But despite his suffering, we see that Job trusts God. He maintains faith. Strikingly, remember, he's not read this. He didn't know what was going on in heaven. He knew nothing of the heavenly council, Satan's charge, God's purpose, none of it. It wasn't like he had insight into it and then said, right, I'm going to steal myself for it. Ready? Go. No, he didn't have a clue. Doesn't that make his responses on both occasions absolutely incredible? All he saw were marauders and natural disasters, and I can't imagine what that day was like for him. In that first trial to have those four consecutive bursts of bad news to be ruined in an instant, to lose your dearest loves all in one day, to lose your health, even when your closest friend, your wife, can't even find a consoling word or a shoulder to cry on. What was that like? Some of us know dark, dark 
dark days like this. And many of us still do as Job has done. Hold fast to God and worship him. Look with me, verse 20. After this first round of loss, Job got up and tore his robe. So he is outwardly showing what is happening in his heart. He shaved his head. There's no splendor. Proverbs talks about the splendor of hair in men, especially gray hair, by the way. And here, shaved that head. No splendor. I don't want any glory. I don't want any respect anymore. No one should look upon me and think, he's a good guy. He fell to the ground in worship and said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Notice what he does not say. How dare you take all these things away from me? These are my kids. These are my flocks. I've worked hard for every single one of these. Or God would have said to him what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, what do you have that you did not receive? Why do you boast as if all is yours? Why do you treat God like his supreme goal in life is to maintain your comfort? No, he acknowledges God's sovereign kindness. I had a lot. I didn't, you didn't have to give me any of it, Lord, and I'm grateful that I had it even for that time. Now, even though he says that, it's not to negate the pain, okay? It is not negating the feeling of the sufferer. Come back next week. We're going to think a lot about it. Job, rest, Job wrestles with these questions. His friends are kind of helpful, they're not. But Job worships. He doesn't say, stuff you, I'm out of here. Job will not curse God. No, that's what Satan wanted him to do. And probably used his wife to say it to his face. As you see in verse, chapter 2, verse 9. Are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. Don't be hard in heart, of course, because she suffered great loss that day too. But let's be clear. Cursing God in this instance as a sin. And the two sentences that finish both of those sections are very, very clearly teaching us one of the main points of this passage. In Job's suffering, in all these things, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing or saying something wrong. No, because God is upmost in Job's heart and revered above all things in Job's soul, the response is a response of a person who knows how much of a treasure God is. And in fact, he is the ultimate reality. Now, sometimes bad things happen to good people for reasons we cannot understand, not through any linked deservedness. And these reasons, even if we're not informed of them, are still God's prerogative, and it's vital that we trust in him. That's a lesson we have to learn from chapters one and two. God is still doing great and good things. He's not capricious. He's not mean-spirited. He's not just toying with us like we're puppets. He's often working, he is always working his purposes out. Often we don't know why, but occasionally, occasionally, occasionally he gives us a little sneaky peek. Just as he did my Rwandan sister. Remember her giving her testimony? Five-year-old innocent playing as, as his mother 
recounted through body-shaking sobs her pain. I didn't tell you the end of the story. In that very same testimony, she told how two years later, she was sitting in a chair in her front room, alone, except for a baby innocent sleeping in her arms. She was staring at the door the men had burst through, a door still bearing the marks and scars of the violence shown it. She was thinking about the men who had come in, and especially the man. She'd been staring at the door for a long time because she was planning to open it at some point. She was praying, and she was asking for lots and lots and lots of help. She took a deep breath, got up from her seat, walked out her front door, turned to her right, walked about 12 steps, and then turned to her right again to face another door and knocked on it. The door opened, and there he was, the man. It was our next door neighbor. I want you to know, she said, that I forgive you. And I pray that God will be as merciful to you as he has been to me. Jesus Christ is your only hope. Three days later, the man became a Christian. His soul was saved his sins forgiven, he started to live for Jesus and served him. Oh, I wish you could have been in that service with me. All the tears and all the sobbing were drowned out by this volcanic eruption of hallelujahs and praise. Glory was being given to God because the sneaky peak despite the suffering, had shown that someone else was brought into that kingdom and was now working to bring healing and restoration. He asked her, he asked her years later, they attend the same church now. He asked her, why did you do it? What was it that made you do it? And not only did she talk about the fact that she's been shown mercy from God, therefore she should show it, now, here's the only Kinyarwandan that I actually know because I remember her saying it and I wrote it in my little Bible that I had with me. She responded to him, Yesu niwe amahoro yachu, which means Jesus is our peace. So, brothers and sisters, when suffering comes, and it does, it will Let's remember it's not because God's in control. He is. It's not because God doesn't love us. Man alive, Jesus proves that he does. But though we cannot see his hand, we must always trust his heart, his word, his promises, and trust him at all times, saying with millions of others who've suffered, may the name of the Lord be praised. Let's bow our heads.